Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Welcome to Starship Sofa, part of the District of Wonders Network, featuring Tales to Terrify, Crime City Central, Protecting Project Pulp, and the all-new Far-Fetched Fables. Everyone has a story in the District of Wonders. Come and find yours. This is the Starship Sova, everybody. Welcome. Hello and welcome to show 340. I am your host, Tony C. Smith. Hello, everyone. I hope everyone is fine and dandy. What a show. What a show. Get a look at this month's cover art by the one and only Jim Burns, one of the classic science fiction artists out there. Been going for 30-odd years there now. And I was, you know, cheeky enough to to ask Jim for some art, and he very kindly give us a piece of his art there. So have a look at this year's, this or this month's art, and hopefully in a couple, couple of months, I'm going to try and get Jim on and, and have an interview with him, because he must be a fascinating guy to talk to. But he just says, it's a busy month, Tony. He says, I've got my daughter's wedding, I'm getting a hip replacement. So I'll just wait a little while until I speak to Jim. But like I say, I put a link onto his site, have a look there and have a look at the artwork as well. Hopefully I'll embed it in everywhere possible so you can see it as well. I'll tell you what else is coming in today, sure. First up is Amy H. Sturgis with her looking back at genre history. Then we have an introduction by John Joseph Adams into his new anthology, Dead Man's Hand. This is, John's like say, got a new anthology out there. And the story we're about to play, The Old Slow Man and His Gold Gun from Space by Ben H. Winters is in this anthology, Dead Man's Hand. So that is today's show. I hope you will stick around and enjoy it. First up then, Amy H. Sturgis. And looking back at genre history, Ames. Hello, ladies and gentlemen. It's time for another look back into genre history. In fact, I'm recording this in May of 2014, and I realized that my very first Looking Back segment ran in May of 2008. So this is something like my sixth anniversary with Starship Sofa. Yay! So I would like to thank Tony for inviting me to be a part of the podcast And I'd like to thank all of the members of the Starship Sofa family who have listened or left feedback or emailed me for your encouragement and attention and interest. I look forward to spending the next six years with you. So I want to do something a little different today. In my work as a professor of intellectual history, I divide my time between speculative fiction studies, mostly science fiction, but also fantasy, gothic work, weird fiction, etc., and Native American studies. Now, sometimes these worlds work together, as in the book that I edited called The Intersection of Fantasy and Native America from H.P. Lovecraft to Leslie Marmon Silko. Today, I would like to share some of my current research with you that also combines these subjects. So, if you're interested in history, if you're interested in fantasy, or if you're interested in Native America, any of those, I hope that you will find this interesting and enjoyable. The working title of this little project is Seeking Dumbledore's Mother, Harry Potter in the Native American Context. And so in this multi-part segment, I would like to delve into a bit some of the issues that I'm discussing in this work. J.K. Rowling said in her 2008 commencement address called The Fringe Benefits of Failure and the Importance of Imagination at Harvard University, and I quote, Unlike any other creature on this planet, Humans can learn and understand without having experienced. They can think themselves into other people's places. End quote. I think the Harry Potter series illustrates this clearly 
because Rowling invites readers to empathize with wizards and half-giants, werewolves and goblins, merpeople and centaurs. The novels not only encourage such connections to fictional characters and their lives, but they also allow readers to use the metaphors and meanings behind the story of her magical world to learn and understand more about our own. If we can think ourselves into other people's places, we can also see through different windows and read through different lenses. I would argue that the rewards of seeking an American Indian context for the Harry Potter novels include greater insights into both Rowling's work and Native America itself. Before I can go any farther, any discussion of the relationship between Harry Potter and Native America has to begin with an early essay in Harry Potter studies. That is Holly Anderson's foundational essay, Reading Harry Potter with Navajo Eyes. This appeared in the 2002 collection, Harry Potter's World, Multidisciplinary Critical Perspectives. Now, at the time Anderson wrote, Rowling had yet to finish the final three books in the series, so there were only four Harry Potter novels for her to draw from. But despite the fact that the Harry Potter saga was still a work in progress, Anderson found she had plenty of material from which to draw some fascinating connections. Anderson writes from the perspective of a Navajo woman who had left her home reservation to pursue higher education and then returned to teach at a Navajo school. Anderson explains that without consciously intending to do so, J.K. Rowling has crafted stories that resonate especially deeply with Anderson's experience and heritage as a Native American. Harry's acute awareness of his ignorance of Hogwarts and its traditions mirror Anderson's own feelings upon leaving the Navajo Nation for Purdue University, for instance. She says, and I quote, I, like Harry, often questioned what people were talking about because I did not know some things that were everyday knowledge for someone from the local culture, end quote. When on the Hogwarts Express, in Harry Potter and the Philosopher's Stone, Harry admits to Ron that he said Voldemort's name only because he didn't know it wasn't done. When he confesses no knowledge of Quidditch or its teams, well, Anderson sympathizes. On his first fateful trip from Platform 9 and 3 quarters, Harry realizes that other students had known from infancy they would attend Hogwarts and had been raised with expectations and information about it, while he hadn't even known the place existed, much less that he was going to be studying there. Anderson notes how foreign college life and then graduate school appeared to her, how very far away both seemed, not halfway across the country, but literally worlds away from her reservation, and how she found herself relying on helpful allies to serve as cultural translators, as Harry relies on Ron Weasley, Hermione Granger, and Albus Dumbledore, among others. Not only to explain the jokes she didn't get and the references she couldn't understand, although certainly that was part of it, but also to help her adjust to this different world and discover her rightful position in it. Her story of displacement and culture shock is not atypical for American Indians, especially those who have grown up on reservations and then leave their homes for colleges, universities, and or urban settings. Due to her background on the res, Anderson finds that many other aspects of the Harry Potter series resonate especially deeply with her. From the familiarity of the Weasleys story, she says, quote, Although they might not be as well off financially as the dominant culture might suggest is adequate, they emit the feeling that they are happy and thankful that they have their family, end quote. To the similarities between traditional Navajo beliefs in magic and shape-shifting witches who take on animal form and Rowling's depiction of the wizarding world and its animagi, maybe Anderson's most compelling insight, though, is her discussion of the parallel in reverse that she observes in the metaphor of the boarding school that Rowling provides. This metaphor, Anderson explains, has given her a new window through which she can see and understand her family's and her people's experience of alienation 
and disconnection. As Rowling's readers know, Harry's matriculation at Hogwarts becomes something of a homecoming for him. At last, he is free to be himself in a setting that encourages his exploration of his identity as a wizard, and facilitates his investigation of his own personal background and the larger culture of the magical world. Interludes such as the period during which he is ostracized by some of his classmates because they fear he is the heir of Slytherin in Harry Potter and the Chamber of Secrets are the exceptions that prove the rule. On the whole, Harry is accepted at Hogwarts and in Gryffindor House as a student, a friend, a team member, even a leader. He is with his kind. He belongs. In contrast, Harry's experience with the Dursleys is one of denial. For the first decade of his life, he is denied the knowledge of who he is as a wizard, and even as the son of James and Lily Potter, fighters against and victims of Lord Voldemort, what little his aunt and uncle tell him, namely that his good-for-nothing parents died in a car crash, is patently false. Later, after he returns to Privet Drive from Hogwarts for the summer, he is denied the comfort of contacting his friends or continuing his studies openly, or even alluding to the very idea of magic. He remains, for all practical purposes, a prisoner where he lives, as the bars on his window in Harry Potter and the Chamber of Secrets illustrate. At best, he receives neglect from the Dursleys, and at worst, open contempt. Furthermore, Harry is forced to live a lie when he's in Little Whinging. His aunt and uncle fabricate an alternate story to replace his own true one. In fact, in Harry Potter and the Prisoner of Azkaban, the Dursleys even insist that he accepts it—that he pretends for Aunt Marge's benefit that he's a student, or is that inmate, at Saint Brutus's secure center for incurably criminal boys. This lie is hardly flattering, right? But it orients him within the dominant Muggle culture as someone more acceptable and less threatening than who and what he actually is. He's not a Muggle, and he never will be. But the lie lets him pass as one. Anderson explains that this contrast between Harry's isolating experience at Privet Drive and the nurturing one at Hogwarts. Offers kind of an inverse portrait of many Native Americans, including her own family members, experiences at home and at boarding school under the non-reservation Indian boarding school and Indian residential school programs that existed in both the United States and Canada for more than a century. Now, I realize that few outside of Native America today are even aware. Of the story behind the Indian boarding school system, so I'll give you just a brief introduction. Residential schools for American Indians date back to the colonial period in North America. They were founded by individual missionaries, religious organizations, and local communities of Anglo Americans or the Native nations themselves. Dartmouth College, in fact, began its life as one such institution, but. A new era began, in principle, in 1869, with U.S. President Ulysses S. Grant's peace policy, and in practice in 1879, when U.S. Army officer Richard Henry Pratt established the Carlisle Indian Industrial School at a former military installation in Carlisle, Pennsylvania. The purpose of the school and the many it would inspire, including more than two dozen established by the Bureau of Indian Affairs, and hundreds of others run by religious organizations across the United States, could be summed up in one word: assimilation. Quote: A great general has said that the only good Indian is a dead one. Pratt said this in 1892. In a sense, I agree with the sentiment, but only in this: that all the Indian there is in the race should be dead. Kill the Indian in him and save the man. End quote. The Canadian government, by the way, imported this system almost immediately. So, what did killing the Indian mean in both the United States and Canada in the system? Well, it meant separating Native American children from their families. 
stripping them of not only their clothes and hair, but also their names, their languages, and their histories, and forcibly remaking them into individuals who could pass, in the same way that Harry passed as a muggle, as a lie, in the dominant white culture. After years in an often harsh, boot camp-like atmosphere, those children who survived, and believe me, the death toll from disease, neglect, and abuse was appalling, would be outward practitioners, if not all true believers, of Christianity who could read and write in English and demonstrate all the skills necessary for entering the lower-class labor market in urban settings, as domestics in the case of women or manual workers in the case of men. Many could no longer, though, converse with their relatives in their native tongues or integrate into their nation's more rural economies, and none could reclaim years of lost life, acculturation, and nurture in their home communities and natural family environments. Today, the efforts of survivors and their families to document what took place under the system have led to the creation of organizations such as the Boarding School Healing Project and the production of documentary films such as Our Spirits Don't Speak English, Indian Boarding Schools in 2008 and We Were Children in 2012, as well as dramatic films inspired by actual events such as Where the Spirit Lives in 1989 and Older Than America in 2008. On the 11th of June, 2008, Canadian Prime Minister Stephen Harper issued a formal statement of apology to former students of its Indian residential schools. And in it he said, and I quote, To the approximately 80,000 living former students and all family members and communities, the government of Canada now recognizes that it was wrong to forcibly remove children from their homes, we now recognize that it was wrong to separate children from rich and vibrant cultures and traditions. We now recognize that far too often these institutions gave rise to abuse or neglect and were inadequately controlled. The government of Canada sincerely apologizes and asks the forgiveness of the aboriginal peoples of this country for failing them so profoundly. End quote. Now, the Indian boarding school system existed into the 1980s. Yes, I said 1980s, well within living memory. In reading Harry Potter with Navajo eyes, Anderson describes her mother's impressions from her years at the Fort Wingate Indian boarding school in New Mexico, which include memories of punishments for acting Navajo, for speaking the Navajo language, even in a hushed voice to another student in the dormitory. Her mother longed to go home, quote, where she could freely express herself, end quote, and practice her culture, where she didn't have to live a lie, where being herself wasn't against the rules. And Anderson has found that taking Harry Potter's journey with him and feeling his emotions as he flourishes at Hogwarts and then suffers at Privet Drive has given her new insights into her mother's and other Native Americans' experiences. Just to be clear, Anderson doesn't suggest that J.K. Rowling intended to draw a comparison between Harry's forced assimilation among the Dursleys and American Indian students' forced assimilation in boarding schools. But I think she makes a convincing case for how seeing Harry Potter through this different lens may enhance our appreciation for the depth and subtlety of Rowling's work, as well as the breadth of her novel's applicability. For that matter, Anderson's essay suggests that sharing these insights with students and fellow readers may open doors for fruitful discussions of sensitive topics that might otherwise be difficult to broach, as teaching tools, in other words, as invitations to dialogue. When I join you next time, I want to step away from Anderson's essay and share some of my own thoughts about parallels in the Harry Potter series and the history of Native America, and ultimately confront the question of why J.K. Rowling might have chosen to identify Albus Dumbledore's mother as Native American. I do hope this has been of interest and that you've enjoyed it. 
I certainly look forward to joining you again soon for another look back into genre history. Thank you. Ames, thank you so much. Wow, six years. Man, I didn't have grey hair then. <laughs> but salt and pepper shading. Don't forget, next month as well, Amy's going to play a part two of her Looking Back at Genre History on this special topic. Ames, thank you so much. Next up is a little introduction then to John Joseph Adams' new anthology, Dead Man's Hand. And I'll put a link on to Dead Man's Hand and to John Joseph Adams and to, because the story afterwards, well, is in that collection, Ben H. Winters, the old slow man and his gold gun from space. And what I'll do is I'll just run on. So from now till the end, it'll just be the Dead Man's Hand anthology introduction and the story from Ben H. Winters. I'll give you a little heads up about Ben. Ben H. Winters is the winner of the Edgar Allan Edgar Allen, Edgar Award for his novel, The Last Policeman, which is also Amazon.com's best book, 2012. Other works of fiction include the middle-grade novel, The Secret Life of Mrs. Franklin, an Edgar Award nominee, its sequel, The Mysteries of Missing Everything, the psychological thriller, Bedbugs and two parody novels, Sense and Sensibility and Sea Monsters, a New York Times bestseller, and Android Karina. Ben has also written extensive for stage and as is a fellow of the Dramatist Guild. His jur- journalism has appeared in Slate, The Nation, The Chicago Reader, and many other publications. He lives in Indianapolis, Indiana, and you can find him at benhwinters.com. It is narrated by Phil Gayandia, who has narrated over 130 audiobooks, including audio winner The Dark Highlander, an actor, director and producer of over 20 years' experience in theatre, film, television and radio. He's currently the artistic direct- director of Gigantic Productions and Little Giant Children's Theatre. He makes his home in the Midwest. So like I say, we'll run straight on with that story. First of all, I just want to play a little introduction. Introduction by John Joseph Adams The phrase dead man's hand refers to the poker hand held by the gunfighter Wild Bill Hickok when, in 1876, he was shot and killed by the coward Jack McCall. There's little doubt that Hickok was playing cards at the time of his death, but what Wild Bill was actually holding seems to be open to some debate. Legend has it, that Hickok's hand was comprised of black aces and eights, with the fifth card a mystery. But in some accounts, it's jacks and tens, or other variations. I suppose the only way we could ever know for sure would be to ask the man himself by reanimating his corpse or traveling back in time, both of which are the stuff of the weird western tale. Not to be confused with space westerns, like Joss Whedon's beloved, canceled-too-soon TV show Firefly, Weird westerns generally take place right here on Earth. Only the world we all know and love is just a little bit different. Like worlds where vampires are real, or clockwork cowboys roam the frontier, or 49ers head to California to mine for manna, or airships patrol the skies. In other words, weird westerns are stories of the Old West infused with elements of science fiction, fantasy, or horror and often with a little counterfactual twist thrown into the mix. You might be thinking, that kind of sounds like steampunk. And it's true that steampunk and weird westerns are similar in a lot of ways. And you'll find some stories, like Sherry Priest's Clockwork Century novels, that could certainly be considered both. But where steampunk can take place anywhere, and often is set in Victorian-era Britain, the weird western almost always takes place in the American Old West, where steampunk is often focused on urban settings and the accoutrements of its period, the weird western is typically a darker, grittier take on a similar notion, with strong elements of the traditional western genre, the wild frontier, the gunslinger-slash-cowboy, gold fever. And while in both you often see anachronistic uses of technology, steampunk tends to be more focused on counterfactual scientific advancements, whereas the weird western welcomes that but also equally embraces magic and other elements of the supernatural. So while both may have clockwork automatons, it's in the weird western where you're most likely to have a dead man reanimated by a necromancer 
only to be subsequently gunned down in a duel by the aforementioned automaton. The origins of the genre can be clearly traced as far back as the 60s with television shows like The Wild Wild West and the 70s with Stephen King's The Dark Tower series, and perhaps all the way back to the 1930s with the works of Robert E. Howard and the strange Gene Autry serial The Phantom Empire. But it was Joe R. Lansdale's acclaimed novel Dead in the West, 1986, that truly blazed a trail. The book, which features the gunslinging Reverend Jebediah Mercer, is considered by many to be the definitive example of weird Western literature, and consequently helped define the genre. As such, this book would be incomplete without a contribution for Mr. Lansdale. Happily, I did not have to contemplate such a notion, for the good Reverend Mercer has a new unholy monster to battle in the very first story in the anthology, The Red-Headed Dead. Unlike the above-mentioned story, many of the tales in the anthology have no literary antecedents, such as Never Sleeps, Cowboy and Aliens creator Fred Van Lente's wildly inventive tale of magic, alternate history, and clockwork chrysalises, and Walter John Williams' The Golden Age, a rip-roaring adventure story of superheroes in the Old West. But several of the other writers herein, like Lansdale, have already staked their Weird West claims, and at my request have returned to mine them once again. Alan Dean Foster who over the last thirty years or so has written more than a dozen tales about Mad Amos Malone and his magical steed Worthless, brings the mountain man back to battle the occult once again in Holy Jingle. Orson Scott Card's Alvin Maker, the seventh son of a seventh son who is locked in an epic battle against the Unmaker, returns in Alvin and the Apple Tree, the first new Alvin tale in more than a decade. In Stingers and Strangers, Seanan McGuire brings us a new encrypted story, in which cryptozoologists Francis Brown and Jonathan Healy encounter some very weird wasps, plus some other unpleasant surprises. And in second hand, Rajan Khanna returns to the world of his story Card Sharp, in which decks of playing cards are imbued with a magic that makes any deck of cards a deadly one. That's just a little taste of what this anthology has in store for you, and that last example brings us right back around to playing cards and our eponymous dead man's hand. To sum up, in the weird western, we take the historical hand we're dealt, but we bluff reality and make what you would think is an impossible play. So that's the game, Pard. Pull up a chair, ante up, and I'll deal you in. The game's weird west, no limit, and everything's wild. The Old Slow Man and His Gold Gun from Space by Ben H. Winters Sacramento, California, 1851 Whether Caleb and Crane came out to California separate and partnered up later on, or whether they knew each other from some eastern climb and made their way westward as a pair, well, who the devil can tell, and what the devil does it matter? Suffice it to say that whether they came to their claim as partners or came to it alone, Crane and Caleb came the same as all of the rest of them, maybe overland on some slow-rolling desperation caravan from Oxford, Mississippi or Albany, New York, jouncing on rutted wheels through Salt Lake, Deadwood, Barstow, maybe aboard a leaky old cutter or rounding down around Cape Horn, dipping and rolling on the seasick waves. Some way or other, the point is, they came, drawn like iron shavings to a magnet, drawn to the golden promises of Sutter's Mill, drawn by hope, fool's hope, by that same mania that had lit up the eyes of poor men and rich men, and credulous men and wise, that had seized them up and drawn them down from all across the continent and all around the world. Caleb and Crane weren't nothing special, and never would they have been if it weren't for the spaceman. Tomorrow... Caleb would assure his partner, every night, before stretching out weary on his thin rucksack, emptying out his day's sad pocketful of flakes and powder. We'll strike a ridge tomorrow. Tomorrow, Crane would answer, and then they'd close their eyes. The both of them closed their weary eyes and dreamed their dead dreams of gold. Tomorrow never seemed to come, though. Not for most of them out there, and certainly not for Caleb and Crane. April through May, May to June. Heavy work, long days, flakes and dust, 
a teensy nugget now and again. Now and again, a tiny little half of a half of a half ounce of gold. Nothing to speak of. Nothing to hold. Just enough to keep you scratching at it. This was the summer of 1851. Long ago, the easy pickings had been picked. Long ago, them few big winners that was ever gonna be had filled their pockets, filled their buckets, filled their wagon beds up with gold and rolled away. And yet they said it, Caleb and Crane, and felt it too, in aching bones, needed to know that it was true. Tomorrow. Tomorrow. Caleb, so you know, was big. Legs like ox legs, neck like a bull neck, torso like the petrified trunk of an old-growth tree, sturdy and unbending. He looked not like a man of woman born, but like a figure of a man someone carved in a barn door and animated by some manner of charm. A sturdy, muscled golem, fit to hoe a row, work a shovel, dig a mine. Crane was little, taut and thin and steely as a loop of wire, with a long nose and little delicate glasses perched on the end of it. You'd have seen the two of them, Caleb with his ropey neck and ship's anchor fists, Crane with his spectacles, and you'd have figured Crane was the brains of the operation. But you'd have been wrong. There weren't no brains to this operation, just sweat and hope and tired, exhausted dreams of the motherlode. June to July, August to September, camped out there on the lip of their rutted square acre on the Sacramento banks, their dope's claim. Giant Caleb and Wiry Crane, with their ramshackle cabin and rickety apparatuses, digging and muttering about tomorrow. Six months their drumbeat was the flat thud of shovel on clay, the rat-a-tat of new handfuls of gravel, the day-long rush of water sluicing through the long tom, the rusty scrick of the cradle as it rocked, separating, separating, seeking. If you'd have said to Big Caleb at some point that long summer, you're madmen, you and your friend. He'd have laughed, a snorting bull's laughter, pointed you away with the long barrel of his rifle. If you'd have said to Crane, you're madmen, you're dunces, you'll die out here before you strike it rich, he'd have chuckled bitterly, told you to go do something dirty with a donkey, twisted his small bent body back to the work of his shovel. It would have been as crazy as to say that a man from Neptune will come and make you a strange proposition and then die of violence on the banks of your claim. That's what happened, though. One night, late September, that is indeed what did occur. Wake up there, you boys. I got a proposition for you. This is what the old man said by way of greeting, but too quiet to rouse Caleb and Crane from their respective Golden Castle dreams. Wake up there, he repeated a little louder. Loud enough now. Who's that? said Crane, blinking awake. It's goddamn tramp, answered Caleb. It's who it is, and hefted himself into a sitting position and landed his big bare feet on the dirt floor of the cabin. It was so late it was almost early, almost the next day. The old man, ancient and tiny and slow, was surrounded by dawn's first glow so that with his wild, uncombed white hair and his lined face, he looked a little like a saint, a little like a ghost. Oh, good, muttered the man. You're stirring. The old man's voice was harsh and gravelly. He was bent with age, and his right arm was shriveled and deformed. His mustache was bushy, yellow, and unkempt. He wheezed heavily. Over his shoulder was a black sack. Caleb was on his feet by now holding the old man steady with the creaky, long-barreled hunting rifle he'd fetched out from under his pillow. The heck you won't. I already said. The old man cleared his throat laboriously, tottered unsteadily into the cabin, cast a quick glance at Big Caleb's long rifle like it was a children's finger-puller. I got a proposition for you. Now, wait a minute, wait just one minute, sputtered Crane, snatching his spectacles from beside his bedroll, and sliding them into place. Just who the devil are you? Well, I reckon I could tell you my name, but it won't do much good, said the old slow man. His white hair was a wiry tangle atop his thin head. It's in language you won't understand. If you mean Spanish, you're wrong about that, 
said Crane, who prided himself on his como estas and his uno dos trace, which he'd picked up off a Mexican whore. The old man snorted. <laughs> Not Espanol, son. I'm from Neptune, the dark side of the planet Neptune. There was a long silence in that moment, after the old slow man said he had come from the dark side of the planet Neptune. In the dawn outside the cabin, you could hear the pleasant morning babbling of the creek, hear the gentle morning calling of the California birds roosting in their California trees. If someone in the proper frame of mind were there, they might have felt that the surroundings were downright peaceful. It might have occurred to such a tranquil observer that whatever precious metals were or were not to be found beneath the surface, there was a copious bounty of a different kind. The squirrels at play, the sun glimmering off the green, right here out in the open. No one in the present company, however, was in such a frame of mind. Did you say you're from Neptune? said Caleb. Help, said the old man, and coughed. <laughs> the dark side. Caleb drew back the hammer of the rifle. What? Where is Neptune? said Crane, looking from the old slow man to Caleb and back to the man. What is that? It's a planet, said Caleb, gesturing heavenward with the barrel of the gun. But this man ain't from there. He's from a drunk tank or an alleyway. He's a tramp and a thief. No, sir, said the old man. I'm from Neptune, like I said, and I got a proposition for you. Nuh-uh, said Caleb, and spat on the ground, and leveled his rifle at the old man's face. See, I got a proposition for you. You get the hell out of our cabin and get good and clear of our claim, or I'm going to put a bullet inside your head. Right, Crane? Crane didn't say nothing. He had taken off his spectacles and was staring at the old slow man, squinting, as if merely by looking at him hard enough he could puzzle out the truth or falseness of the man's wild declaration. Crane, said Caleb. Still, Crane didn't say nothing. The old man, meanwhile, stared steadily back at Caleb, while the smallest curl of a smile turned up beneath his droopy mustache. Go ahead, then, he said. Shoot me. It was almost comical, the bravado with which the old man faced Caleb's rifle, given how small he was, how frail, especially compared to the massive claim digger, how decrepit with age. You crazy old-timer, was all Caleb could think of to say, while the old man still stood there on his pipe-cleaner legs, and Crane stood there staring, scratching his head. Caleb lowered the gun so it pointed at the floor, murmured it again. Crazy. The old man looked around the cabin with roomy eyes, wheezing slightly. Crane, in the meantime, still staring at the old man, had brought out his pouch of tobacco, Oh, hell, Caleb, he said, rolling himself a cigarette. Let's hear what he's got to say. And that was that. Caleb shrugged. Crane pinched his cigarette closed at the ends, and the old man was permitted to make his slow way into the cabin and to take a seat on one of the upturned packing crates that served for seats. And what he did next, instead of talking, was he slowly drew open the drawstring of the bulging satchel and took out an antique flintlock pistol, dust-caked and rusted. Caleb looked at Crane. Crane shrugged. Caleb looked back at the old man. You on your way to a costume party, old man? No, sir! The old man arched his eyebrows and chuckled throatily. <laughs> That's a gold gun, and it's gonna make you boys rich. A gold gun, said Crane softly thoughtfully even, but Caleb was scornful and agitated, shifting his big torso with irritation. That thing ain't gold. I didn't say the gun was gold, said the old man. It's a Neptunian gun. It finds gold. It what? said Crane. But his tone was more and more thoughtful, and he was looking with open interest at the battered old pistol, even as Caleb shook his head kept on his mask of incredulousness, said, If that there's a magical space gun, 
Why does it look like a regular old flintlock pistol from the goddamn Mexican War? Well, why do I look like this? We aliens and our alien devices can't go around showing off our real appearances on your human planet. Your minds would burst and break from the side of it. Hooey, said Big Caleb, and he stepped forward and snatched the gun from the old man, who let it go willingly. Immediately on touching the gold gun, Caleb felt strange. The gun had the weight of the old pistol it resembled, and the cut of the handle felt familiar, like a thousand gun handles he'd held before. But on holding it, he felt a radiant discomfort, traveling up his fingertips from the gun, up through his arms, down into his guts. It gave him a rolling kind of feeling in his stomach. He put the gold gun down, and the old man picked it up and tucked it back in his satchel. Now, said he, here's the proposition. The gun finds gold is what the old slow man, the man who said he was from Neptune, explained to Caleb and Crane. The gun finds gold. You take it out, he said, when you're outside, when you're at a patch of ground or a length of creek. You hold it up, and you don't even pull the trigger. What do you mean you don't pull the trigger? said Crane. Caleb was silent, had been silent since holding the gun and feeling the way it made him feel. I mean just that, son. You hold it, you point it, and it jerks and jumps, kinda. It dances, and it points the way to gold, to the real thing. Caleb and Crane stared at the old man, wide-eyed, rapt. So here's what we're gonna do, you and me, boys, said the old man. Caleb and Crane listening intently, chewing on their mustaches, straining their minds. We spend two days out on your claim, relying upon the alien wisdom of my device, running its powers over your patch of dirt. We pull more gold out of that mud flat than the two of you with your pans and your hands have scrabbled up in the last six months. What then? said Crane. What then? We'll split it. Sixty percent to you two, forty percent to me. Awfully business-minded, ain't you? observed Crane. For a man from space, I got no choice. The old man shrugged. What you people call gold, my people call food. And me and my people, we're running out. Food? Caleb broke his silence. This fresh bit of strangeness was too much for him. You're telling me the people from the dark side of Neptune, whatever you said, you're telling me they eat gold? The old man nodded, scratched his forehead, and a crust of skin fluttered down to the floor. Not just the dark side, light siders too. This just what Neptunians eat. Back home, son, people look just as funny at you if you told them you ate ham and eggs. Caleb fell silent. Crane, meanwhile, rubbed his furrowed brow, focused agitatedly on the practicalities of the matter. I don't get it, old man. Your gun's so smart. Why don't you just take the thing out to the claim your own self, or out to any other claim? Dig up as much as you want, make off with it. Dig yourself up a nice gold feast and leave Earth for good. Would that I could, said the old slow man, looking around the ramshackle cabin. But I'm tired. Where I come from, a man needs methane in his air. And the atmosphere on this damnable planet of yours, it's got no more methane than a bucket of spit. Where's a man out? I can't even lift a shovel in this heavy soil of yarn. I'm weak. Look at me. Every hour I spend here saps my strength. Even standing here, I feel my bones cracking. My heart pumping too fast to keep me alive. I need a couple of young, strong earthlings to do the digging for me. And like I said, I'm willing to pay for it. Overwhelmed by this vigorous outburst, the old slow man began to cough, and he coughed so violently that he nearly doubled over in his chair. Then he settled back and closed his eyes, while Caleb and Crane huddled their dusty heads together. You know what he wants us for, Caleb said to Crane. He wants us for mules. Yes, Crane said to Caleb, and then paused. At sixty percent. A 
A smile played at the corners of the lips of the old slow man. Up they all stood, and down they went to the claim. The gold gun from space worked just like the old slow man said it would. Why, it worked like the absolute devil. They walked down to the claim together, the three of them, down to that rutted quarter acre with the twist of creek down the center of it, and stood at the edge. The old man drew the gun forth and pointed it. Didn't even pull the trigger. You never pull the trigger, he said, and no bullet flew forth. The chamber did not turn. But the gun jerked and danced in the old man's hands, and the muzzle jumped and poked in a certain sharp direction, like the nose of a dog when it's caught a scent. Caleb and Crane watched this performance with astonishment, and when it was done, they looked in the direction that the gun had pointed, and saw that over the land in that spot, the air seemed disrupted somehow, seemed to twinkle and dance. The air above that spot of land was like tissue paper that had been wrinkled and smoothed out again and now shimmered prismatically in the daylight. And there they dug, and there they found gold. Not flakes and small bits, but ounces of it. Nuggets. Thick, gorgeous clots of gold. Eureka! shouted Caleb. And Crane said it, too. Eureka! And then again, and then again, all that cool September morning, the old man would point the gun and its metal nose would jerk and dance. Caleb and Crane would clabber over to where the air above the ground or above the creek was disrupted, twinkling, textured, where the atmosphere had been set to sparkling, and they'd get to it with their shovels and hoes, and out would come the gold, the gold formerly so elusive, revealing itself to them, singing out to them, making itself known, like a coy lover suddenly eager to be taken. Eureka! hollered Caleb, every time he heard the satisfying cling of his shovel's edge on a patch of the real deal. Eureka! erupted Crane, each time he felt the sharp resistance of metal striking metal down there in the muck, that beautiful jolt traveling up the sinews of his forearm. The old slow man sat on his haunches on the edge of the claim, aimed his gun, watched it work, watched Caleb and Crane chase the reward. Watch them pour the gold-flecked grit into the cradle, sluice it clean, watch the golden pile grow. And then, after the fourth drawing of the gold gun, with only but a bare eighth of the claim covered so far, under the hot sun and his labored existence, the old man yawned and stretched and tilted back his head and fell asleep. Caleb and Crane noted that he was asleep and looked at him and looked at each other. As was so often the case, both of them were thinking the same thing at once. It was only a matter of who would speak at first. It was Crane. Forty percent is awful high, is what he said, whispering the words, pushing his wire glasses up the bridge of his nose where they had slipped on the slick of sweat. Awful high, Caleb agreed, nodding slowly, clapping caked dirt off his palms. This was all that needed to be said, because the gold gun was not the only armament down at the claim that day. Caleb had his hunting rifle tucked up inside his coat, the butt of it down there in his waistband, just as he did every day, in case of wild cats or gold thieves or other predators. Now he drew that old rifle free from his pants and walked up the slope, while Crane stood down in the dirt, nervous, his eyeglasses glinting against the sun. Caleb walked resolutely on his thick tree-trunk legs up the muddy slope of the claim and killed the sleeping old man without ceremony, a single brutal blast right through the center of his head. The body tipped over backwards on the rocking chair and slipped soundlessly down into the dirt. The thing done, Caleb turned and looked down at Crane, who shielded his eyes against the sun and then slowly trudged up the slope, too, to stand there between his companion and the body of the man he had killed. Caleb looked saddened by what he had done. Do you think... began Caleb, and then stopped himself, sighed. His eyes were brimming with tears. Do you think he was really from Neptune? Yes, answered Crane, speaking softly like he was speaking to himself. He bent and lifted the gold gun off the corpse of the old slow man. He was. What? said Caleb. 
Crane pulled the trigger of the gold gun, and a wash of wild blue fire poured from the muzzle, a blanket of heat and light in the air, surrounding Caleb, smothering him, boiling him alive. In an instant, a flash. Big Caleb died with a scream trapped on his lips, frozen in place as all his organs failed at once as the light washed over him. No more gold fever, no more desperation, no more sad glitter of hope for he. As for Crane, he held the flintlock pistol aloft and looked it over and whistled appreciatively. Those clever bastards from the dark side of the planet were always so much further ahead in the technology department. They really were. They couldn't survive on foreign planets near half as well as lightsiders like him. But dang could they manufacture... A gold gun indeed. Crane hunched over, grabbed a handful of glittering metal from the massive pile he and his poor dead partner had gathered up, and chewed it thoughtfully. There was no way around it. This gold gun heralded a major improvement in his lifestyle. Pickings had been so slim, the takes so small, that to get enough to eat, he'd needed a partner. But it had been stressful, all the sneaking around, "'waking in the middle of the night, "'eating enough of the other fellow's share to live on, "'but not enough to be caught. "'It had been an anxious, furtive existence, "'but he'd got by. "'May to June, June to July, August to September. "'Now everything would be different. "'Now he'd bury these two bodies, "'and then Crane would feast. "'For Nick Temarkin. <laughs> There you go, don't forget, copyright is Ben H. Wintis. And I just want to give special thanks to John Joseph Adams. Let me play that story too, Ben. Ben, fantastic, man. Brilliance Audio and Titan Books for allowing this reprint of The Dead Man's Hand. Extra thanks to Brilliance for allowing us to use their audio as well. Brilliant. Thank you so much, everybody. So that is Starship Sova's show 340. I hope you've enjoyed it. I certainly have, and I hope you join us next week. Until then, I would just like to say good night from me. Will our heroes survive this terrible ordeal? Can they win through with their integrity unscathed? Can they escape without completely compromising their honor and artistic judgment? Tune in next week for the next exciting installment of Starship Sofa. This presentation has been brought to you by the District of Wonders Network, dedicated to podcasting the finest genre fiction. You can learn more about the District of Wonders and their many literary productions at their website, www.districtofwonders.com Thank you for listening.